Welcome back to The, the Mentors. Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today on the show, we have Kevin Yu, which we actually got introduced to him by our good friend Kyle Bergman of Swoveralls. Hashtag Swovies. Yep. And Kevin has a really, really cool background. Uh, he is the founder of a company called Wearworks. And he comes from an industrial design background, but over the last few years of building his company, he's already accomplished a ton. Uh, so much so that you guys should be really excited to hear his story. He's been covered by New York Times. He's appeared on the Discovery Channel, TechCrunch, Fast Company. You've won multiple awards as a designer as well. And the story of how you came across the idea of your business and how it's evolved over the last few years is incredibly inspiring. And what I like about this story as well is there are probably people out there that are in non-traditional careers. Uh, and if you're thinking about being a creator yourself, you can always do it. As a matter of fact, Kevin started his first business while in college, and we're going to hear all about that story. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Nice to be here. So, Kevin, you know, we talk a lot about on this podcast of when is it the right time to start a company and do your own thing? And for some people, I think it's actually a good time to start in, in college. We, we've actually written an article on a Forbes about this because you have relatively a lot of freedom. Sometimes you have lower, less amount of responsibilities. Maybe you might have some financial help from some sources. So it's just a good time for many reasons to start a company. For, but for many other people, actually getting outside experience can be very valuable to understand the world and understand problems that are worth solving. And you kind of did both. You got outside experience and you also started your first entrepreneurial venture in college. But in our pre-interview, we talked about how you actually had leadership experience even before starting your own company. You said you were president of a design club at your school. Is that right? Yeah. And so clearly you had this entrepreneurial itch and gene that was probably developed from an early age. Can you tell us a little bit about your first entrepreneurial experience that you can remember, whether it was in college or before that? To answer your first question, I think um, being, I guess like I didn't even know what the word entrepreneurial, I mean, was for a very long time. Um, I guess if I go a little bit back into high school and such, I was also um, playing a lot of tennis. I became captain of my tennis team quite early. And so by doing that, I, I was forced into a position at a young stage to, you know, tell people what to do. And we had to win as a team, as a group against uh, other teams so i wasn't the best player in the beginning i was uh, i was a you know sophomore um when i started to play number one singles and then i, I started to realize like okay I'm, I'm learning i'm learning a lot here but i'm losing like a lot of my matches and my my coach did this purposefully and i found this out later on that he wanted me to lose as much as i could right off the bat Sophomore year, junior year, I got like crushed almost 90% of the time. Mm. But the matches that I won, it was like a party. You know, we, we had a party for it and it, it made me feel really good about it. But, you know, it made me feel less sad about losing. It made me feel more untuned to learnings. And I think also by being captain at a, at a younger age, he also did that on purpose to make sure that we're not about age hierarchy, which, you know, I'm from, I'm from Korea, South Korea, and age is everything you know hierarchy of age is really like such a immensely important thing in the culture but as soon as i moved to the u.s i started to understand like hey that's not really 
um, anything. It's, it's not, it doesn't really mean anything, mm. especially if you just kind of get over it. So with the whole captain thing and the whole tennis uh, sport, it was, you know, you had to be good. You had to learn really fast as how you guys also learn about podcasts really fast. I think for me, the first thing was I, I was a sore loser for a long, for a whole year. And then I started to realize losing is not so bad. The failures are actually, you know, okay. And then I started to, to tell people that this is how it feels to win. This is how it, how to win. And I think we should all win together as a team. And by the time I was a senior, we made it to the championships. We got ranked uh, as a team, uh, highest ranking we've, we've received um, in, a, in several years. So I think really that was my first understanding of low, slow progression of gratification of your team, of your coach, and just slowly getting better over time. So I think that rolled over into my college life. I was I started off very independent in the, in the early years. And um, I just kind of like, you know, I was an RA as well. So I got into the RA position really early on. And I was like, okay, I just want to have the perks. <laughs> but in the end, I realized I, I like to be under control over my situation. And then after the RA situation, I got nominated for a couple of really nice competitions, which I took advantage of. I, I was, you know, not smoozing all the time, but I was definitely looking at my opportunities and definitely taking the chances. And the one thing that my, my mother and I always used to do was watch tennis. And um, whenever there was a moment of a striking moment where you could win the point, she would just yell out, chance. <laughs> and we'll, together, we'll do this together. We'll just be watching a match together. And then she'd be like, this is it. It's coming. Chance. And then you'll see like a match point. So I think that was a really important lesson because as I got to college and as I was more independent, I had to take these chances on my own. And if you see an opportunity and if you don't take it, you're really not going to get the winning point. So, you know, just standing around like, you know, doing the work that you do to do your best, but also going out of the sideline and just kind of seeing what, what's out there and just taking those chances. And eventually it will roll over into a longer progression of success, I think. So can you talk about a story where you saw an opportunity and you took a chance and it paid off and tell us how that played out? Yeah, the earliest one that really paid off, I think, the most was when I was a sophomore in uh, at Pratt Institute and um, a professor took a liking to my my to my style and design. Uh, it was very you know early stage. We're just making you know cardboard cutouts and carving stone and stuff like this. And she just kind of liked the way that I was working because I was doing it in big scale. And she would always tell the class, "Look at this guy. He's making stuff like really really humongous for no reason, but it's actually kind of cool. Like mm. make things big so you can." You can like observe it differently because people were making things very tiny. How did you know how to do this? Or is this just a personal style? It was just, yeah, I just kind of felt like I wanted to just make things bigger because I, I like sculptures. I like like big sculptures, but I don't like sculptures that just stand there. I like things that have a, have a purpose. And once I realized later on, big sculptures are pretty much pavilions. So I was pretty much just creating pavilions. So she saw that and then she got me into a competition for a GE and FDNY collaboration project. Uh, and and this was a really big one. Like I was competing with really top dogs, like really really advanced architects and grad school kids. And I was like, in the beginning, I was like really intimidated, super intimidated. I I definitely think I think that I was not gonna win, but I was obsessing over it. I think I obsessed over it more than anybody in the entire competition because they had lives, you know. They had uh, by then they had like girlfriends. Some of them were married and they had like you know they were working on many many different 
types of projects that were like really advanced. And I was just like a the young kid in the group that everybody was just kind of like, hey, we're gonna help you out because you know we don't think they're gonna win. So it, it was like this kind of interesting coaching method, right? You as a young person to get into an environment where you're surrounded by the most experienced people, it's probably the best thing you can do. And I think that was that was the opportunity that was given that I took a chance at. Like I could have been like, hey, you know, I'm not gonna win this thing. I'm just gonna like take it very lightly, you know, whatever. But I obsessed over it. I pretty much every day I woke up, I thought about this thing. I went to go visit all the different architects that I I thought I respected. Mm. And then I did all of my research. And over time, Maya Lin was a big influence on me. I even tried to find her in New York. She lives in New York. And I I just kind of like, you know, really just purely obsessed over it. And then eventually when I won, um, not only my ego went up, (laughs) my actual reputation in the school went up because the, um, the CEO of GE came by. There's actually multiple CEOs of GE. They came by, um, a lot of the top people from GE came by and they saw the presentation of all of our models of our pavilion designs. And that was like an open school thing. Like everybody saw that in the entire school. And it was, you know, for me, it was like a big deal, obviously for everybody. But to win that definitely made me feel like I could do anything, and, you know, reduce risk of everything. Hmm. That's a good point. And, you know, I think a lot of times people that are young, they might have trepidation in starting or even competing with others that are more experienced because they make assumptions, right? I'm not maybe as good or as experienced or uh, have as much validation under my wings. But that doesn't necessarily matter for two reasons. One, like you mentioned, some of those other people, they had families, lives, multiple projects they were working on, but that can also be a distraction. And so for you, this was the main focus. You became obsessive about it, and that was probably a competitive advantage because you could actually focus on it. And the other thing is, even though you didn't have any experience or as much experience, you actually were coming at it from a unique perspective, at the very least, uh, something that was true to you. And that alone helped you get differentiated and ultimately helped you get standout. So then how did this, and I mean, I can imagine how, right? Obviously now the school knows you, all the professors do, uh, the CEOs of GE, right? You're, you're becoming relatively known. How did this then uh, lend itself to entrepreneurial opportunities or opportunities to make money? Uh, that's a great question. I, th- I think now that I look back at it, um there's so many things that that one event did that trickled down into everything. The first thing you said was to just be known. You know, the first thing you really got to do is get yourself out there and not be afraid to really just say your name and introduce yourself and and do the rest of it. So I used to uh, talk about this a lot with my co-founder, Yong. He he and I started a a sustainable furniture company and he was the more back-end guy, you know, as a quiet engineer on the sideline, just kind of like assessing things from, from, you know, really different angles, but he didn't like the interaction uh, as much, but he was also incredibly intellectual. I always felt like I needed him by my side, but by having somebody so opposite of you, you really build yourself up to the other side where you need to really perform as as well. Mm. Because, you know, and I realize like, I'm, I, I, I don't like to say this, but I am just a designer at that moment when I was just a young kid, just going to college and I was just learning the basics of design. I was like, I'm just a designer, but I am good at it. And with this skill set, I definitely know for a fact I have to work with other people. And that's just a given fact. You know, engineers, fashion designers, business people. But I, I think, I think the thing is, I just kept looking at things I was really, really bad at. Hmm. 
And I found people that I could really just bond with that could just do that portion really well. And I kept complaining about this at Pratt actually because I had a mentor who had an amazing partner. He was, you know, obviously they um, they were funded by themselves, which was number one great thing. Um, and then once now you have the diversity of skill sets, you can really kind of start whatever you want and be quite successful, I believe. But for me, it was it was harder because I wanted an engineer. I wanted like a tech nerd. Uh, I needed somebody to like kind of produce something very innovative with me, uh, with the hopes of changing a, a, a social life. You know, which is the hardest thing to do. And if you're in a design school, you really can't find that. So you really have to just not go and be cool within your own, you know, your own, you know, breed of people. Like that's the only reason why I love New York. That's the only reason why I came to New York. That's the only reason why I didn't go to, you know, RISD or these other really prestigious design schools. Because once you get hollowed out, you're not going to be able to, you know, get what you want. I think, in my opinion, to the entrepreneurial state was. I know that I'm not. The best at everything for sure. I know that I am going to be the best at what I'm doing, which is designing and understanding uh, the marketplace. I kn- I know about the marketplace because I know people, and I think that was what, what my my true intention and true powers were. Was like, you know, I know how to make people better. I know how to pe- make people perform better, and for myself too, because I know how to do that for myself. And to do that to other different types of people. Were definitely the most interesting challenge that I ever had to go through was, okay, how do I how do I how do I how do I solve that? Because if I solve that, you can have a team. Let's talk about that though, because you know even at NYU, huge school, tons of different majors, right? Twenty schools within that university, and I still have people complaining all the time. I don't know any tech people, or I don't know any designers, or I don't know any salespeople. How did you actually tactically go out there? and meet those people and then actually beyond even meeting them attract them to start working with you how do you even start doing that it was hard it was really really hard actually i think that part was the moment when i felt like i didn't want to start anything hmm. uh, because i just thought to myself if i just get really good at design i get a design job uh, which i did for you know about a year or so uh, in manhattan and i quit and to to begin this endeavor full time i thought i can just i can just do that and it's it's really easy and very simple but there was like really that moment i was just going around and i was just complaining about it all the time like hey you know i don't know I, there's no way for me to get in front of somebody that i feel like would be my my lifelong journey partner who just will you know work and and like work with the same passion as you do you know work the same hours and all that stuff like it's very hard to find hmm. so i think in that case, there was one very lucky moment, which is this Digital Arts and Human Research Center, which does not exist anymore. But that was where multi-discipline people got together. A lot of people from uh, companies will come in. They'll pitch their ideas and have prep students work on them. So as soon as they started to do that, uh, like Verizon, for example, was one of them. Razorfish, we all exhibited at Razorfish, which got me into a lot of contact with technology. And a lot of really interesting things like... Um, uh, fashion uh, oriented like 3d printing into uh into fashion items that was first done in this area for uh, for a client like as a as a test piece and i don't know I, I think just general exposure of that was the first leeway into it hmm. yeah interesting so you obviously saw the value in building relationships with other people and it sounds like also 
and we had a similar path as well where you know we graduated with degrees in economics and finance and we started working in finance and there was a, there's a trajectory that we could have gone in which is stay in finance get well-paying jobs or continue to get well-paying jobs grow in that career have comfort be incredibly bored and that's kind of what kept it coming back and really sticking with us is okay i mean this is great but if you really only know that you live once and you want to spend your time in a way that's actually fulfilling that only gets you so far for us for other people it might be great you know they find fulfillment in other areas but for both sergey and i i don't know if it's because we were raised i don't know if it's in our dna we felt like we had to do something more so it sounds like you recognize that early on as well, that sort of desire inside of you to partner with other people, to work on things that, or do things that might feel scary because they're not comfortable, but still do them because it's worth it. So then you met your partner, Yang, at this uh, research center, right, within Pret, and you guys started a sustainable furniture company together. How did you guys start that? Did you guys just start, you know, at this point you had already had some recognition or? Yeah. And how, how do you go from, to touch on what we were talking about before, how do you go from meeting somebody at an event, let's say, to then being co-founders with them? What was the story there? Actually, um, Yong and I were just straight up bros <laughs> before <laughs> before the, 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 the dark, the Digital and Human Research Center. Mm. I actually brought him into that place in order for us to start working more on projects going forward. And then we ended up doing our company Wearworks much, much later down the line. So I joined, and this is like, actually, this is a really, really good story because I was very intimidated by this research center because it was in the, the newest building that Pratt Pratt built. It's like a very luxurious looking thing. And it's in the top floor. So I was walking by one day and my friend Virgil uh, walks over and he's on his way to the research lab. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? You know, um, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm, go- I'm going to this you know, research lab. It's, uh, I was like, oh, what is that? So I started asking him some questions. And I get very interested. And I'm like, uh, let's go get some fruits and go up there because I, I don't know personally I like to like you know provide some offerings when I go to a, to a location I guess very <laughs> very weird but anyways it works so we got we go to, um, to a store nearby we get some peaches and stuff and, and we go upstairs and uh, it's my first time going in there everybody's like working on very cool stuff you know a lot of grad student kids you know they're, they're just doing cool stuff and I go straight to the guy who's running it, who's now like a very amazing mentor of mine, uh, Henry, Henry Yu, same last name, ironically. <laughs> but he, he's just on the back, like talking to some people. So I go straight to him and say, hey, um, I'm trying to make this pavilion space for Pratt. And I would love to have your help make this thing. And he's like, wow, this is cool. So I just flip by my laptop and I just give him a little presentation. And he's like, this is, you know, this is perfect because it's all about collaboration. I think, I think that was the aspect of it. We were all promoting collaborational aspects of different disciplines. And I just kind of hit the jackpot by just walking in there. And it was an immense amount of paperwork to get into the, you know, the association because once you do, you get forever access to the university. Hmm. So a lot of, a lot of perks that comes with it. But I was the youngest one to join in. And once I joined in, I was taking full advantage of it. And then I was starting to bring people into it as well. But Yong and I, we were making furniture before before this, just as friends. We were just hanging out, you know, just doing our college stuff and making making furniture. And then over time, I was like, come through to this thing and you know, work with the people. And he was more like, I don't want to, I don't want to go do that. I don't want to like be joining this like you know club thing and 
you know, be all lame. <laughs> but in the end of the day, by doing so, by by forcing some of your friends to take the leap to go into collaborative mode, to talk about their, their ideas and their projects and whatever they have in their mind, they're always trapping in their head. It, it really bursts out a lot. And that place, I think, you know, even though it, it doesn't exist anymore, I think it was one of the most, um, for me, the most iconic thing that showcases collaborative efforts amongst designers and engineers. Hmm. So you guys already were, it sounds like, making furniture on the side. When you say making, were you designing it or actually building it as well? Yeah, we were doing both. So I was making a lot of furniture for a while. I was really into, in the beginning, not even sustainable stuff, into resin. So I was pouring resin, timing stuff, and, and, and using it as the adhesive instead of using wood glue or any kind of like drill bits. So I was using resin, uh, resin furniture to showcase actually oil spills because it was black and it was liquid. So it looked like oil spills and when it was all happening back then. And then uh, Yong was doing stuff with um, very... You know, precise cuts of, of uh, wood using CNC machines, dabbling, starting with these kind of more precision mer- uh, machining. And then we got into um, Rico Brooklyn. I definitely want to give him a shout out because Rico uh, has reclaimed woods. Back then, they, they had these giant piles of reclaimed wood that no furniture makers would ever use. And they would just bring it somewhere and burn them. So we went to them and said, hey, can we represent your company on our website? And by doing so, can we use your scrap wood? And so they were like, yeah, just take them. They're all, they're all here. They're all free. So we started to just take a crap ton of these reclaimed wood, and we just thought about what to do with them. Hmm. And the best thing that we did was uh, just drill a hole in the middle. The first thing, the, the best piece, I'll talk about the best piece we made. is a Giorgio table. Uh, you can find it on pewterfurniture.com. <laughs> but we, we 3D scanned the wood. It's a ginormous asymmetrical shaped wood. Uh, and once we 3D scanned it, we used SolidWorks and other type of uh, software uh, platforms to get the center of gravity. Once we got that, we drilled a ginormous hole and we spiraled uh, metal legs all around it. So we flipped it upside down. We just put a giant lump of metal legs and we let it go and they all spiral out. That's very beautiful. So I'm like, let's just keep it like this. Keep it simple. And then we pour pewter. Pewter is a very low melting point metal. It's kind of like... Um, it's 99% tin and 1% copper. It's, it's pretty much the low melting points metal. So we started to use pewter, got a melting pot, and just started pouring metal directly into the wood. The, the interesting part happened once after. It fuses naturally with the metals. So even though it's steel, aluminum legs, copper legs, whatever, it fuses with the legs, but it doesn't fuse with the wood. So practically what happens is it creates an asymmetrical joint. It creates like a very custom one-off joint inside of the wood. So we create a trumpet inside of the wood using the CNC method. And then we trap the pewter joint inside that fuses with all the legs. And then we flip it over. It takes about 15 minutes to cool. Um, and by the time we, you know, we're done chatting about it, we flip it over and bam, you have a table or a stool. <laughs> and so this was like a really exciting thing for us with time, with using of the natural resources, end of life. When, you, when you're finished using it, you can just you know, break the wood in half, which we've already done many times to our prototypes. You re- remelt the pewter, recycle everything. So, hmm. Can I ask you something? It sounds like you were doing a lot of collaboration, a lot of experimentation, and kind of just following your passion of doing interesting projects and creating interesting things that you want to see exist, like this furniture, for example, that sends a message about something. How were you supporting yourself during this time? Like, how do you work on those projects and create these cool pieces, but then also afford to live in New York? <laughs> well, luckily back then, I was sponsored by my parents. 
I mean, I was in college. I, I did, you know, I was an RA for about a year, which definitely like reduced my cost of living and stuff. So I kind of did what I had, what I could do without taking too much time off my plate on the projects to, you know, save as much money as I could. But once after I moved out of the campus and once after I, you know, I was a senior and everything, these projects, some of these outside projects, that's why I like outside projects better than in-class projects because they pay. Like for example, the pavilion space, uh, competition that paid that flew me out to West Palm Beach that flew me out to you know Crotonville they you know that paid me for the success of winning uh, unlike sometimes school projects like they they're great you can spend all your life on it or uh, all your energy but in the end of the day you're really doing it for yourself which is fantastic but you use it as a stepping stone to get to you know winning competitions or to doing outside projects that generate revenue in some extent it's not a pay for your entire living but it was a good motivation to say hey when i got a job like i've already did this before i've already got paid for my work before and that was a a good and it just made everything easier when i was doing interviews i think i always was very comfortable during interviews because i was already so used to talking about my projects my work because i had to practice talking about it for the presentation to win these competitions Hmm. and that that pressure is sometimes much more than you having an interview for for a job that you may not even want. So I think that was like a, a you know outside projects like that. That's really it. Yeah, that's a great point because some people feel like they're very skilled or uh, you know their their qualities are very unique or whatever it is, and they may feel like doing free work. In, in in your case, it was in school, but still is beneath them or a waste of their time. But it's not as long as you look at it as a stepping stone and as long as you don't do it for too long. Because if you have value that you're bringing to the world, then you should get compensated for it. And then it sounds like you started getting that through winning these competitions and the like. So this this furniture that you created or this process of creating sustainable furniture, that you, it sounds like you kind of stumbled into it, right? Was that through classwork? And is that the right assumption that you stumbled into it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's totally because, you know, I was taking a lot of furniture classes, like my main design classes for like two years in a row were furniture classes. But the thing is, and I'm not promoting this or anything, but um, I was like never there in the in the class hmm. because I was working with my friend Yong on the side doing actual furniture making and making like a, a, a process, you know, making a concept that eventually become a business. And sometimes like what, what the classes I, I believe to me was doing was to do like short term thing and test something out. And then once it's over, like you move on to the next project because it is about iterated process. But the one thing that I was really excited about in furniture, because I was already making so much iteration on my own, I just wanted to go out there, go out, out of that box and really just into nature and just like find wood. Because in the end of the day, I, I knew that I, I was gonna make furniture out of wood. And then I knew that I was gonna use a process that was gonna be like, you know, in, in a way sustainable and easy to make. And so I think I did stumble into it by taking so many furniture classes and just by like getting my mentality set of, I wanna make a lot of furniture. And then escaping the furniture environment of, machines that you have to use like there's a bandsaw there's a you know there's all these like you know equipments that they, they provide for you but what if you don't use that what if you go out and then you use something else like a, a saw or like some kind of hand tools that people don't really use anymore but now what if you use reclaimed wood you know how come people are not using reclaimed wood 
And what about one-off pieces? Because I find value in one-off pieces, and I don't want to use IKEA furniture anymore.、Mm. So I, I feel like these are the questions I started like asking myself, and a lot of people felt that way as well, right? But you know, the reason why we got into like the Milan Art you know festival for furniture and, and even sold the, the Giorgio table, and that was like that was like really the, the hype of it. You know, we had a gallery show in Connecticut.、Uh, one of our、uh, buddy that. Was very wealthy at the time. I mean, he still is. He's like a real estate mogul, but he bought the furniture right there, right?、Um, and because it was beautiful, but it, it represented wood that he liked. It represented the sustainability which he wanted to represent in his hotel or whatever else that he's going to put the furniture in. And I think that's that's really what it comes down to. If it's a positive message, and if people, you know, just want the the message implemented into their lives, then they'll buy it. So. I can already tell the reason why you're a good designer and entrepreneur is because you ask the question "what if" a lot. You even just said "what if" a couple of times, which I think is a, is is the right trait to have. Can you expand a little bit more, actually, about how you went from designing furniture in this way to actually turning into turning this into a business? Like, how how much did you sell that piece for to your to your mogul buddy? <laughs> yeah, and sorry before before you do that, one thing that I think is important to note to our listeners is. And I don't know if you did this on purpose at the time or not, but the way that you went through your college experience was actually the right way to do it because a lot of people they might question, let's say, the value of a degree when you spend a ton of money on it, and then you know what happens then? You have to pay off a bunch of debt for a couple decades. Like, what's the value there? But it sounds like you used it as an opportunity to learn as much as possible so that you can then translate it into. Actual work that you get to do that you're proud of, and in this case, it ended up being entrepreneurial, which you'll, you'll talk about now, based on Sergey's question.、Uh, but that doesn't have to be the case for everybody. But I think that's a great way to experience school, or even a job that you might not love.、Uh, that might be a precursor to a more ambitious project that you're working on. Try to learn as much as possible on your own terms, and take from it. What you can to then hopefully help you accelerate your learning and get better and better and create your unique you. But yeah, if you can talk about now、uh, what Sergey asked, which was how did this then turn into an entrepreneurial endeavor? Yeah, I completely agree with you 100 on, on your statement as well. the The furniture thing was, you know, really just a passion thing, and I, I do believe that down the line, like I wish I could still do it in my free time, and I do. You know, at Craftsman Ave, I still go there and teach classes, you know, once a month. Because I just have to get out of my system, but in the end, I, I, the furniture company itself was started because I wanted to keep making furniture.、Hmm. It wasn't because I wanted to keep selling furniture.、Hmm. And I think with the switch that happened to wearable technology also happened because you know I met a I met a guy Marcus Engel, and he was a blind author and a writer, very intellectual, and he was able to clearly articulate his problems to me. And in a really amazing emotional way, and as soon as he did that, I was hooked, and I was like, "I'm, I'm, I'm gonna solve your problem, man! Like, I'm gonna just spend the rest of my life and solve your problem."、Mm-hmm. And you know, I went to、uh, his hotel with his wife, and we just spent like four hours just talking about it, about what actually the problem was, like what is actually what it feels like to actually lose your sight and to go through a problem、um, like that. That's gonna change your whole life, and how do you get people to understand it, and then to actually generate objects that can help you? And here's one thing that I did. This is a little off off of the the question, but I think this kind of relates. 
when I was a, I was living in the West Village and I was like having a job at that moment. I was working at like an architectural lighting company. This is right after college. Right after college, yeah. Um, I started, I started to already work on the the product, but I had to sustain. I had to, you know, make money. So I was having a job. I went to, and to your point, I went to a, a crap ton of meetups. I just went online. I was having a job, and I just looked for all the meetups that happened after 6 p.m. And I was already in Manhattan. I wasn't like you know the center of it all. So I was like, I'm just gonna go to these things every single day, have some free beers, have some free food, and just meet some people, some tech people, and, and talk about your passions. So I did that for a long time, and then I ended up quitting after about a year or two to to move on. But during that time, I I blindfolded myself and I walked outside with a, a blind cane, a, a white cane for two weeks. And sometimes when I say that,、uh, I say it with a lot of caution because、uh, sometimes they're like, "Huh, you know, that's very dangerous," or that's like, you know, whatever. You know, I don't know. I, I get a lot of back backlash for it in the beginning, so I didn't tell anybody. I just kind of did it、um, for two weeks. Every time you would go outside, you exactly, would blindfold. Right. Wow.、Exactly. Why were you motivated to do that? Because after Marcus told me the,、uh, his entire story. Oh, this is after you met Marcus. Yeah, it's all is after I graduated and after I got my first job. Like during that first year of working. Like kind of what you were saying, you know, I had to do something outside. So the main thing I did was to go to these meetups to keep on, you know, meeting these new people. I guess the, the the tools for, and then I remember this one distinctive moment where I decided for two weeks I wasn't gonna do this. The first week I cheated like every single second. Like it's so hard. And you 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 wake up in the morning. You wake, you know, you can imagine yourself looking at yourself in the mirror, and you close your eyes and you say, "I'm not gonna open my eyes until I come back home." Later in the night, and you walk out the door, and the first thing you do is you open your eyes, <laughs> and you know the first sense of danger. You do that. The first sense of you know smell, even anything, like whatever sound. You just you your your consciousness just wants to see what it is. But I had to really keep teaching myself not to do that. And then over time, I couldn't go outside with the eye patch anymore because it just looked too ridiculous. I wanted to be treated like you know. Uh, a blind person, not like a, a, a sighted guy, putting a thing on my face. So after the the first week of cheating continuously, I, I started to get used to it. And even my friend was driving me around Manhattan, driving me around to、uh, to Brooklyn.、Uh, Young, we were still doing furniture stuff back then. And I was like, I'm not gonna open my eyes until I go to your house, and then、um, later in the night I'll I'll do it. And so he's like, All right, whatever, man. So on the on the drive, I I I, I remember like these moments. Uh, acceleration, how you feel about acceleration, how you feel like as soon as he was like, wait here for a second, I'm gonna get my wife, walks away, and I'm holding onto the car, and I just let go for a second, and then I just lost my orientation. I completely lost where I was, and I was like, I, and he found me just wandering into the forest, and he's like, he's like, dude, dude, what the hell are you doing? So I think these are the things that I I was able to talk about later on to Marcus and to other.、Uh, Blind consultants that I've been working with, also to my co-founders,、uh, more in depth, and and I think more than it being a design thing, because there are people who are really I was inspired a lot by people who do and put themselves in the shoes before they they design or make anything, because it doesn't make sense if you don't do that. So I was always convinced by that theory, and then the secondary thing was if you're gonna start a business, you gotta you gotta go all in, like you have to go all in and you have to. Do it with a lot of risk on yourself, and I, I think, I think I saw that like very off the bat. I think a lot of people、uh, sometimes don't, but yeah, that、hmm. was like a risk factor. Wow, interesting. I don't think 
too many people would really commit like that and, and immerse themselves to that degree. And of course, having learned about your story, I know that you did that again later uh, throughout the evolution of your product because you ran the marathon, right? And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But just because Sergey asked the question, and I know people are listening and they might want to get the answer, when you did that first piece of furniture, Giorgio, is that what you called the line? Yeah, we, we call it Giorgio, yeah. You sold it to the gentleman. Uh, how much did he buy it for? 3000 3000 that's all. For one piece of furniture? Yeah, for a table. That must have felt good. That felt really good, yeah. And my friends from Connecticut came by and they, they sold it for me. They were like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And so clearly that, that gave you some confidence to continue doing this. And it sounds like you continued doing this actually until a couple of years ago, right? The furniture stuff yeah the furniture thing i mean as, as i said i'm still kind of doing it once a month in order to you know just get out of my system because I, I i gotta make stuff with my hands you know and i think i i'd like to do that with wood specifically but yeah i mean i, I never saw the furniture thing as a business uh, even though i said my first business and i started is a furniture company because it was i guess as soon as we sold something um and we established it to like a pretty good efficiency of production but in terms of it actually being a business, I never saw it as that as the end goal. I really saw it as I want to have a reputation where we can we can make these things and be respected for these furniture pieces and give it to our friends. And so what I what I'd like to do is I make these furniture pieces and we, we give them to our friends, we have them showcase somewhere, we promote sustainable making of products. So I think like that's the main goal of this you know, company, this furniture company business, but it's, it's really not to make revenue. Like mm. that was the only piece that we sold. Uh, other pieces that we had some inquiries for, we never pursued them because we just got busy doing other things. But, and we, we never wanted to like be those people that made it for the money. Huh. Uh, definitely not for furniture. Yeah. So you just heard part one of our conversation with Kevin Yu of WearWorks. This conversation was so riveting, at least to me and Medine, while we were sitting here, we were paying attention to every word that Kevin was saying that we didn't want you to miss out on any of it. And so we decided to separate it into two parts. But next week, you'll hear more about how Kevin actually went from doing a lot of the different projects that he talked about in today's episode to starting WearWorks and exactly how he got that company and brand off the ground. (laughs) 